our society, our, our way of life has been going through some changes here for, um, for a while now. Uh, the patriarchy, you hear that term a lot, the patriarchy, has been much in the news lately. And lately is probably not the right word for in the U.S. We've been seeing the fight against the patriarchy has been ongoing for at least the last 100 years, 150 years. Two movements have been closely associated with that fight. The temperance movement, starting back probably about the 1870s, which was mainly against men drinking alcohol, to be truthful. And the crusade for women's suffrage, the movement to grant women the vote. Now, when uh, some of you may know that my daughter Megan is a contrarian, and when she was in college, uh, she was in class, and they were talking about the different amendments to the Constitution, the rights granted thereby. And uh, the professor asked the class, you know, if they had any comments on this, and Megan raised her hand. And she said, yeah, I think the 19th Amendment to the Constitution should re be repealed. And the professor, who was a woman, said, oh, but the prohibition against alcohol has been repealed. I, that's not in force. And Megan said, that's not the 19th Amendment. And the teacher stops and she says, you're not talking about women's right to vote. And Yes, Megan was talking about the women's right to vote. And uh, it caused not a little stir at her college among, uh, among the professors. Now today, modern secular society blames to a large extent Christianity for fostering a patriarchal society which should tell you how much our culture understands A, Christianity, B, Christian history, and the history of every other historical society. In ancient Greek, for instance, a woman could not vote. Okay, you know, just talked about women's suffrage. Uh, they could not own or inherit land. Most babies who were exposed which is leaving them to die on dung hills or in dumps, were female. Marriage was arranged for a girl at 13 or 14 years of age by her father. After marriage, a woman was totally controlled by her husband. All inheritance from her side of the family went to her brothers, unless she had none in which case the inheritance went to her father, uh, to her husband. The same rules applied at ancient Rome. These were sort of universal across the ancient world. And what about among the Jews? Well, a woman could not give testimony in court. And I've taught that before. She was deemed an unreliable witness. Uh, so low was her position in society that a common prayer among the Pharisees was, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I am not a woman. And did you hear the order that was given in? That I am not a Gentile, 
I hated Gentile. I am not one of those. And drop down a lower to a lower magnitude. I'm glad that I am not a slave. And finally, I am glad that I am not a woman. Christianity completely overthrew the established order. If you if you do a timeline of Christianity. After Jesus was born, when he was presented at the temple, two people prophesy and announce him to the world. Simeon, who, as you all know, I believe to be the uh, son of Hillel, the high priest, and a woman, a prophetess named Anna. We actually know her lineage. She is the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She's one of only nine women in the entire scriptures uh, to be recognized as a prophetess. Alongside Moses' sister Miriam, the judge Deborah, Huldah, the wife of Shalom, the wife of Isaiah, which is not given, but uh, Isaiah and his wife were both prophets, and who we just recently saw, the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, who were prophetesses. Women, also as we go through Jesus' life, were among the first and most trusted of uh, the disciples of Jesus. Luke 8, 1 through 3, records this. And this happens just after Jesus has healed the Roman centurion servant. I give orders, go here. They do this, go there, they do that. The Roman centurion says, Jesus, just give the word and my man will be healed. Well, right after that, famous incident, it says in chapter 8 of Luke. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, the twelve disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, and listen to the next line, who provided for them out of their means. You get that? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, out of Herod's household, Susanna, and many other women, it says, supported Jesus' ministry out of their own funds. We see later in Samaria, Jesus spoke to not only a Samaritan at the well, but a Samaritan woman at the well, who is shocked that a Jew is speaking to her to begin with. Women were the last to leave Jesus' crucifixion. Women were the first to find out about his resurrection. In all, 35 women are named by name in the New Testament, and many, many others are talked about. But 35 women are named in the New Testament, and all but poor Sapphira, and as I always say, it's what a wonderful thing to be named in the Bible if your name was not Ananias or Sapphira. 34 out of the 35 women named in the Bible are named approvingly. Paul wrote to the, um, in the, his letter to the churches in Galatia after his first missionary journey. 
Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And here's the line that we're getting to. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The world says that Christianity supports the patriarchy. I'm going to say, in the words of Crocodile Dundee, that's not patriarchy. You know, you want to see patriarchy? Go to the Greeks, go to the Romans. But Christianity is not the patriarchy. So with that as an introduction, and my introductions are usually longer than my teaching, so don't get too worried there. We're almost to our study in Acts 16, 11 through 15 for today. But first, a word about the Apostle Paul. His words on the comportment of women while in church is what most people think of when they say Christian is uh, patriarchal today. Because Paul had some things to say about women in church. You know, he tells women to be quiet in church, okay? How dare he? And here's the offending passage, 1 Corinthians 26 through 40. Uh, and the pericope, the heading above this that some Bibles give says, On orderly worship. So Paul is trying to tell these early pagan previously pagan churches on how to behave in church. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in, in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you... I think I'll stop with that one and explain that real quick. Orderly worship is the point of what Paul was making here. Not that women, that not that men could speak and women couldn't, but what should be mentioned here is that women for the first time have joined men as equals in worshiping God. This has not happened before in Jewish uh, synagogues. The women sat on one side, the men sit on another. You will see that in Islam um, mosques today but here with Christianity as Paul said before there is no male nor female there is no Jew nor Greek we're all one worshipping together and the women were so excited to be in the church and be free to worship God that they talked too much they were excited And they talked and they asked a lot of questions. And Paul says that for orderly worship, the women should let the service go on. Do do you notice that none of you are asking me any questions right now? 
right? That the service should go on, and if you have a question about what is said, ask your husband at home. See if he knows. I don't know about all of you, but I do know that we talk of things of God very often at home to try and figure out what they mean. And this is much the same when he speaks about women teaching men in church. For, that's from 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. He's giving Timothy, who we see, he's just, he has just met Timothy in our previous sermon and is impressed with him and wants him to come on this missionary journey that they're, we're going to be looking at. And the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, is his pastoral letter to a new pastor. And he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without angering, anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The point is not that women can't teach. As a matter of fact, as we know, women can teach. I don't teach the women's Bible study. Uh, Lori and Erin taught this before. Uh, Lori left for Tennessee. But women can teach. It's a matter of authority within the church. Along that line. You know, when I'm, I think of analogies, right? You know, I'm not a mother. I'm a father, okay? Mothers and fathers are different, and they do different things, and they really do. We can argue about that later. My role is not mother. My role is father. My role here is a teacher to stand up in front and to, to teach with the authority of Scripture, And that is what we try to do. Our passage in Acts today reads as such. And with background, Paul has had a vision of a Macedonian man calling him uh, for help. And he says, please come and help. Paul has, um, with Dr. Luke and Timothy, who has just joined them, Dr. Luke has joined them now in uh, the missionary team in Troas, a port city. Troas is a port city to the known world at that point. You could go to the Black Sea one way, you could go to Egypt another, you could go to Greece and Europe another. We suspect that the reason that Luke met the group was that Paul was sick, could not go any further into Asia. Uh, with his missionary journey because he was ill and went to Troas, a big metropolitan city, where he met Dr. Luke. Picking up from there today, we read, now, mind you, they're in Troas, and it says, So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household also. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, they go first to Samothrace. Samothrace is a very mountainous island in the Aegean Sea. It can be seen from everywhere. Uh, mountains rose to almost 6,000 feet. BLNs live almost at 6,000 feet. That's... They would be on the top of the mountains in Samothrace. It was, in Greek myth, it was the home of Poseidon, the Greek god of water, as we know, earthquakes, and horses. Who knew? Um, I don't know how all three of those go together, but that's what he was the god of. From the top of the Samothrace mountains, Poseidon could survey his kingdom on all sides. So, they did not stay and preach in Samothrace. They sailed the next day, the winds being favorable. Uh, And we know the winds were favorable because the next day they make the Greek mainland. On their return trip, it takes five days to do the same thing, beating against the winds that were then prevailing. And it says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Philippi was 10 miles inland from the port city of uh, Neapolis. As a Roman colony, Philippi had the standing of a Roman city, which was a good thing to have in those days. Uh, It had the right of uh, freedom, which meant that it was self-governing. They weren't underneath the, uh, the province that they were in. They were exempt from territorial taxes. So they were a rich city because they could use their money as they wanted to do. And they were under Roman legal procedures and precedents, which means that you had the right of appeal to, the, to Caesar if you thought you had been wronged. With his usual precise timekeeping... Luke says that they remained in Philippi some days, uh, which appears to be more than three and less than seven. And we'll get into that why in just a, a minute. Because verse 13 says, and on the Sabbath day, so they arrived in Philippi, on the first Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. As we know, Paul's custom when coming to a new city was to find the Jewish synagogue, to go worship as a Jew, and then to preach Christ to the people gathered. Jewish law required the establishment and therefore the support of a synagogue in any town that had 
ten Jewish men as heads of household. The law was they had to, they had to um, form a synagogue. Uh, and uh, ten Jews are considered a minion, uh, the minimum number for doing that. Philippi apparently did not have that large a Jewish population because there were no men meeting to pray. There was no synagogue. There was no men meeting to pray. In this case, that you didn't have ten men to form a synagogue, Jewish law prescribed that all Jews were to gather together and meet outside, probably, uh, preferably near water for purification rituals, but they were to meet outside in the countryside in a, a regular meeting place. So they, so when Paul gets here and there is not a synagogue, when it says that he um, went outside the gate to the riverside, he knew where the Jews should be meeting at. They should be meeting near the river, outside, in an easily accessible place. He thus found it near the riverside. The Sabbath worship was attended only by women, and a Jewish rabbi, which Paul was as a matter of fact, but a Jewish rabbi, a self-respecting Jewish rabbi, would not have sat down and taught them with no men present because they weren't of the standing to be taught by a rabbi. But Paul sat down. The sign, the teaching, was about to take place. Verse 14a says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, I'm not going to... I've done it before. I'm not going to tell you how purple goods were made. It was a stinky process. I've done that before. Lydia was one of the 35 women that I counted as named in the New Testament. But that might not be her name. Um, Her name was probably not Lydia. uh, Because just as Jesus was often referred to as the Nazarene, Lydia may be a place name, such as the Lydian lady or the lady from Lydia. Um, It says this woman originally came from Thyatira, and that's one of the cities uh, in Asia Minor that Paul could not go and preach to because of his illness, um, and also one of the churches in the listing in Revelation. But Thyatira was what had formerly been the kingdom of Lydia. So Lydia and Thyatira are, are matched together here. And Thyatira, as it says, was a center. Well, it doesn't say there. Thyatira was a center of commerce specializing in purple dye. Purple dye made purple vestments. It was a very expensive process to make purple dye. It came from two places. It came from a shellfish called the purple fish. Ha! What can I say about that? Or from Mataru. It was a hard process. Those who made them, uh, made the dye, were generally wealthy people selling to wealthy people. She is described here as a worshiper of God, which tells us that she was not a Jew, because Paul, uh, Luke would have pointed out that she was a Jew. She was a 
worshiper of God. So she wasn't even a proselyte. She was what was known as a um, devout Gentile woman who was drawn to the Jewish religion and to the Jewish notion of God. Verse 14b says that, that Sabbath morning, quote, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So all those gathering here would have been thrilled to sit under the teaching of a traveling Jewish rabbi. The women, for, this, for them this was a special treat. Without enough men for a minyan, no rabbi would teach them. They gathered to pray, to sing together. And here is Paul come, not just a Jewish rabbi, but a renowned teacher of the law. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Her heart was open to the words Paul spoke, and she was filled at that moment with saving faith. She'd probably never heard of Jesus before, but to have this Jewish rabbi explain the scripture, point out the fulfilled prophecies, and to explain who Jesus was, touched her, and she became a believer in Jesus. Being at the riverside, verse 15a says, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. So her response upon belief in Jesus was much the same as the um, Ethiopian eunuch, the uh, court treasurer of, uh, of Candace from Ethiopia. Uh, when Philip explained the gospel to him, he said, here is water. Is there any reason I may not be baptized? And she says basically the same thing. She was baptized then, and her household who had accompanied her had believed as well, and they were all baptized. So the rest of verse 15 reads, And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, ends of that time were scarce. We know from the, uh, the uh, birth story of Jesus that uh, it was better for them to stay in what we believe to be a cave than to go to an inn where there was no privacy. John MacArthur points out that um, ends of that time were filthy. They were dangerous. They were expensive, just to make it even more appealing. And often, they were little more than brothels. This woman known as Lydia, a businesswoman of means, had a large enough house to put up the missionary entourage. After her baptism, newly filled with Christian hospitality, she was moved to open her home to those who fully opened her heart <coughs> to God. So, from this simple start came the church in Philippi. From a woman reaching out to missionaries, Richard Longnecker comments that from Paul's um, letter to the Philippians, it was one of the Apostle Paul's most loved churches, that he was filled with love for the people of Philippi. 
And far from Christianity and Paul enforcing the patriarchal norms of the time, note, as I started with, the first converts to Christianity in Europe, because this is the first missionary outreach to Europe, was to a group of women that no rabbi of that time would have deigned to sit down and teach. Also, the first European church would grow out of the hospitality of the woman known as Lydia. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were served by the hospitality that Lydia showed them. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul mentions two women. Uh, He mentions Syntyche and Euodia. It is believed that one of those women will show up here in uh, Acts in the next chapter as the jailer's wife that was saved from committing suicide after the earthquake. That one of those women was the jailer's wife and the, the other one, and we don't know which, Syntyche or Euodia, was Lydia and was the real name. From things written, many scholars believe that Paul married Lydia um, in Philippi. And uh, he talks about a co-yoke bearer in that church. And not scripture, we don't know, but it is interesting to consider. Far from being a man-centered hierarchy... God has used women in Christianity from the very beginning, from the Annunciation of the coming of the Messiah to Mary, who God chose to give birth to Christ, to Mary and Martha, sisters of his beloved friend Lazarus, uh, Mary who sat down taking the air of a disciple, sitting at Jesus' feet while he taught, to Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and the many other women who supported Jesus in his ministry with their own money. To the women gathered at the foot of his cross until his body was taken down as night approached. To the women who came at dawn to anoint his body for burial only to become the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. As the aforementioned crocodile Dundee might say, patriarchy. Patriarchy? Christianity? That's not patriarchy. So, as we look at the church around the world today and see the ministry of men and women together, keep in mind That, as Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. We are all bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ together in his continuing work. Let's close in prayer.